Please remain standing for the reading of God's inspired, holy, perfect word. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you'll turn in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 18 to 31 through the end of the chapter. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, it is, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. You may be seated. This morning as we pray, we want to especially remember our team that is in Africa right now, uh, Mike and Connor and Steve and Coney. Uh, Tony, as they um, are uh, preaching to pastors from all over the southern part of Africa, in particular we want to remember uh, uh, Newton Chilingulo, who is uh, a pastor in uh, Lilong Way, Malawi, and uh, we want to especially remember him as he joins with our team in, in training other pastors. So um, join with me as we pray. Our gracious Father, we're so grateful for the love that you have lavished upon us that we so often take for granted that yet, Lord, in your grace and your grace alone, you've enabled us to see at least a glimpse of your glory. And Lord, as we recognize your wondrous power in our lives, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your gracious mercy, you have saved us. You have enabled us, Father, to come boldly before your throne and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we recognize today that the wisdom that we might bring to this world is nothing apart from that which you have granted to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you, even this day, would open our hearts and our minds to receive that which you would have for us today from the power of your word, that we might be changed and transformed from glory to glory into the very image of Christ. Lord, we're so thankful, Father, for the power of your word, the power to change us, the power to enlighten us, the power, Father, to increase in our hearts and minds the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and the depth of your love. And so, Lord, today as we come before you, we recognize that apart from your grace that we can accomplish nothing in this world. For who are we, Lord, to be able to worship you? Who are we to be able to stand before you, a sinful and rebellious people? Who are we, Lord, to boldly approach your throne? 
Father, just by your grace and your grace alone. And so we thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would help us even this day to worship you from pure hearts, that you might cleanse us, and Lord, that you might help us to see that apart from you that we can accomplish nothing, but in Christ we can do all things, for he strengthens us. So, Lord, we thank you for the assurance that we have of, con of confidence in you, of a Savior who is risen and coming again. And Lord, we pray now that you would now prepare our hearts to receive that which you would have for us. And we especially pray this morning uh, for Newton Ch Chilingulo, Lord, and our Africa team. Lord, we just pray that as we, they minister uh, in Zambia and then in Malawi, that you would accomplish the work that you would have for them to do. And Lord, we pray that you would open hearts and minds for pastors and you would prepare them to preach your word with power and grace and wisdom and strength in our Lord Jesus and him alone. Lord, we commit them to you, even as we commit ourselves anew to you this day, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Church, if you would stand with us once again as we sing.
from us, but based on the mighty power of God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that worked faith in us that we would know you. Lord, thank you for your Spirit's continued work. Work here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1968, there was a film called The Lion in Winter, and there's a final scene where two men are led to be executed, and one of the men is very concerned about facing his execution with dignity and courage. The other man says to him, you fool, as if it matters how a man falls down, to which the first man replies, when the fall's all that's left, it matters a great deal. When we strip everything else away and we're left with perfect clarity regarding a single reality, then that reality matters more than anything, and everything else fades away. A man who has only his execution left in life will see that how he falls down is of greatest importance. And in a spiritual sense... When we take everything else away and see one thing as all that we really have, then that one thing is all that matters. And that one thing is Jesus. God wants to strip everything else away from us so that we can see that Jesus is the only thing that matters. And that's the goal this morning, to strip everything else away so that we would see only Jesus. And to get there, though, we need to see the whole picture. So as we Look this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'd like you to see two main points to frame our time. Number one, we need to know the wisdom of God. We need to know the wisdom of God. And we need to know the purpose of God. So one, we need to know the wisdom of God. Two, we need to know the purpose of God. So starting with the first one, we need to know the wisdom of God. And in that, I'd like us to see a wisdom warning the wisdom reality, and the wisdom of God. Wisdom warning, wisdom reality, wisdom of God. So the wisdom warning, and here's the warning. The world sees wisdom backwards. The world sees wisdom backwards. It sees the cross of Jesus 
as folly or foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, where we start, says, For the word of the cross, or the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing. The world sees the height of God's wisdom and perfection and glory, the cross, and sees it as folly, as foolishness. The world's wisdom is backwards. How you see the cross of Jesus will color how you see and understand all of life. The cross shows us the reality of what man is like. The cross shows us what justice is supposed to be. The cross shows us what righteousness is. The cross shows us who God is, shows us who is king, who has authority. The cross shows us love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and redemption and power and hope. And the world sees the cross as foolishness. Without understanding the cross, there is no understanding of the nature of man, of justice, of righteousness, of who God is, of love, of mercy, of grace, of forgiveness, of redemption, of power, of hope. And there's no wisdom if you don't understand those things about the universe. And so the world's wisdom is not compatible with God's wisdom. The world's wisdom is not compatible with God's wisdom. It's not simply another point of view or another presupposition that is of equal value. The world's wisdom is diametrically opposed to God's wisdom. It's in opposition to God's wisdom. We need to see that they don't go together. And to see that a little more clearly, you can look at James chapter 3 where God gives us through James a couple of definitions that are helpful. In James 3... Verse 15, speaking of worldly wisdom, James says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The world's wisdom is from the earth. It's not from heaven. It's from the flesh, not spiritual, and it's from demons, not from God. That's worldly wisdom. But then in James 3:17, we see the definition of godly wisdom. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. God's wisdom is from above. It's supernatural. It's outside the earth. It's otherworldly. It's divine. It's supremely pure. God's wisdom brings holiness and purity and righteousness. It brings peace. It's gentle. It's open to reason. This means it's not contentious. It's full of mercy and forgiveness. It has good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. That means it's not tricky or shifty. It doesn't play politics or play games. It's straightforward and reliable. This is God's wisdom. So do you see? The world's philosophy or the world's wisdom is the opposite of God's wisdom. Worldly wisdom shouldn't mix with the church, and it shouldn't mix with our lives. Second half of verse 18 says, but to us who are being saved, it, the gospel, is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So here as Paul is making this argument about what God does to the world's wisdom, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14 where it says, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Isaiah was speaking to people who were acting the part, who were saying the right things. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. Like coming to church and singing songs and putting on an act, but having a heart that's far from God. What keeps a heart far from God? 
Well, in this case, they were shaping their lives around the wisdom of men, not around what God says. And so God acts and says that the wisdom of the wise men will perish. The wisdom of the wise men will perish. And the, the context of the time in which Isaiah wrote this was during the time when Israel was divided and King Hezekiah ruled Judah. And we can see the story of what happens here in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, and I'll give you a summary of it here. This is King Hezekiah's 14th year of his reign as king of Judah. And Sennacherib, try naming your kid Sennacherib. I'm campaigning for that one. But he's the king of Assyria, and he came against the fortified cities of Judah. And it looks like Sennacherib has imposed a protection fee for Judah to pay. And if they paid it, Assyria won't beat them up. And Hezekiah refused to pay it. So here comes Sennacherib to beat them up. And so Hezekiah sends a message basically saying, oops, sorry, I messed up. I'll pay you whatever you want me to pay. And Sennacherib says, yes, you will. And he asks for 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. So Hezekiah gulps and he says, okay, I'll get you the goods. And so he got his men to gather all the gold and silver that he could, stripping it from the temple. But when Hezekiah made his payment, Sennacherib was still not happy. So Sennacherib sends his general, Tartan, and his cupbearer, the Rabshakeh, to go and have a talk with Hezekiah. And Hezekiah sends out three of his men to meet them. And then the Rabshakeh, the cupbearer, says to those three men, ask your king Hezekiah this, who do you think will save you? You've plotted to form this alliance with Egypt to stand against us. You really think that's going to work? You think Egypt is going to protect you? These plans you have made with Egypt, that's what you're counting on? And this is the key to the story. That was the strategy for Judah. The wisdom of the leaders of Judah, create an alliance with Egypt. But the Rabshakeh calls out that plan and says, nope, not going to work. He then taunts their trust in God and claims that he was sent by God to destroy Judah. And he tells the people of Judah to not trust Hezekiah when their king tells them to trust God. Because, he says, God is actually on Assyria's side, not on Judah's side. So Hezekiah goes to the temple to pray, and he sends for Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah comes and says to Hezekiah, don't worry, God has heard you, and he will take care of the whole thing. And then in chapter 18, verse 34, 2 Kings, God says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And then my favorite part of this verse, and when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Can you imagine waking up to 185,000 dead bodies? That would be the equivalent of waking up and everybody in the city of Orange was dead. And everybody in the city of Yorba Linda was dead. 185,000 were dead. God says, that was your plan, Judah? Make friends with Egypt? Well, this is my plan. This is my power. Boom, they're all dead. 
Judah was trying to work a plan to create an alliance with Egypt. And clearly, their wise plans were not going to work. And God's power was unleashed for His namesake. The wisdom of the wise men perished, and God's power was displayed. By the way, this is the God that you pray to. You know the power that you're praying to? And you stress because your plans of worldly human wisdom look like they're not going to work out. God says, boom, this is my power. This is my wisdom. Back to 1 Corinthians 1. Said, but, again, it says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. It destroys the wisdom of the wise. God's power is absolute. His sovereignty is complete. The wisdom of men means nothing when you consider the power of God to do whatever He wants to do. Let us not forget that God is God, not because we make Him out to be God or because we recognize Him as God, but He just simply is God. And His power is supreme. No amount of intellectualizing, thinking, philosophizing, wordplay, none of that changes the reality that God is God and we are not. And then we come to chapter, uh, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the, the philosopher? Where is the scribe, the writer? Where is the debater of this age, the, one, the ones who can speak well, who have good oratory, who can convince people of things? Where are these people? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The world's wisdom crumbles before the one true God. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we don't bow before God as king, then we're vying to take his throne, and there's nothing more foolish than that. But when we honor him as king, when we honor him as king, then we're able to see everything else in its rightful place. So let me ask, where's the evidence of the world's wisdom around us? The world's wisdom has had more traction and more influence in our country in the past 20 years than at any point in history. And what have we seen out of the wisdom of the world? The disintegration and devaluing of the biblical family, the redefinition of gender and sexuality, the devaluing of human life starting in the womb and so much more. And I would just note that if you look at the last 20 years in America, suicide rates have increased by more than 30%. And maybe you say, oh, that's all just COVID-related. Well, if you look at the year 2000 to 2019, suicide rates in America went up by 36%. I'm not definitively saying that correlation necessarily means causation, but I am saying that the measurements are going the wrong way for the quality of life factors that matter most, and the world's wisdom is not making it better. But we all know this. You all know this already. If you all were to start singing right now, we could literally say, I'm preaching to the choir. We know that the world's wisdom is broken and does not compare to God's wisdom. The question is then, church, why do we still let the wisdom of the world creep into our thinking unassaulted to infect our values and to set up camp in our minds? We entertain worldly wisdom without even realizing how it affects us. We must be vigilant. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy 
and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. We need to know the wisdom of God, and we need to know the wisdom warning. The world sees wisdom backwards. It is opposite of God's wisdom, and that brings us to we need to know wisdom reality. And the reality of wisdom is that human wisdom leads to destruction. Human wisdom leads to destruction. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, to save those who believe. There is saving needed. Why? God saves through the gospel because destruction looms. But he makes it clear, human wisdom cannot lead to God. Human wisdom cannot lead to God. The world did not know God through wisdom. Human wisdom does not get us to God. Those who love Jesus do not love Him because they figured it out, because they were able to make a good decision, because they were smarter or they knew better. There was something else that led them to know God. It was not their wisdom. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus prays and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. Jesus says, thank you, Father, you have hidden these things from who? The wise and the understanding. Human wisdom cannot lead us to God. It leads to destruction, to the wrath of God. Romans 1 Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they what? Became fools. You see, human wisdom is tainted by pride. Humans want to hold to self-determination, to autonomy, to the right to do as they please. We naturally want to be king. And that's what all of life comes down to. Who is king? Who's sovereign? As we continue in 1 Corinthians 1, we see in verse 22, for the Jews demand signs. They wanted to experience God's power in order to believe. They wanted to see the evidence, to be persuaded by what they could measure. That way they could stand as judge and determine if the evidence was sufficient. And as judge of that evidence, they put themselves over God. They made demands of God so that they could judge God. It was their pride. Continuing on, it says, and the Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks were philosophers. They wanted to rationalize and make things complicated in their view of the world. I took a philosophy class in college. That was a mistake. A semester on the question of what makes someone human? And we spent weeks trying to figure out the difference between humans and animals, the difference between humans and self-actualized artificial intelligence. We watched 2001 Space Odyssey, and we debated for a whole semester what makes a human human. And on the first day of class, I'm listening to this, and I was ready to jump out of my chair and just yell, Humans are created in the image of God to reflect Him and worship Him. Nothing else is made in His image. Class dismissed. It's a simple answer, but philosophers want to make things complicated. So they were not happy with the simple answer of the gospel. The Greeks wanted to philosophize about life 
and eternity and God and make it into this whole philosophical paradigm that would be fulfilling enough to fill their philosophical appetites. So then they could stand in judgment about whether or not the gospel could stand up to their philosophical thinking. They, too, wanted to be over the gospel. It's their pride. This is the heart of all sin, our self-centeredness. I want you to track something with me. Go back to Romans chapter 1. I want you to look at a few things over the first few chapters of Romans. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18 again. For the wrath of God. This is where human wisdom leads us, to the wrath of God, to destruction. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We put ourselves over the truth, in judgment over truth. We push down truth, push up ourselves. You know what that is? It's pride. Verse 21, we see a refusal to acknowledge God as God. We see a refusal to give thanks. We refuse to see Him as greater and better and higher than ourselves. You know what that is? Pride. Verse 22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. We think that we're wise when we're acting foolishly. You ever catch yourself thinking you're so smart only to find out how foolish you really are? You know what that is? Pride. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We worship that which we can manage, a God of our own creation, something we can handle which is what we can do if we define who God is rather than allowing Him to self-define. So we define Him so we can manage Him. You know what that is? Pride. Verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. We prefer not to have God in our knowledge. We don't want to submit to authority. Why? Pride. Middle of verse 30, referencing this list of sins, it talks about people being insolent, haughty, or arrogant, boastful. It's all pride. Then you go to Romans chapter 2 and verse 3. Paul is addressing the pride of passing moral judgment and feeling religiously superior. Romans chapter 2 verse 17, he talks about hypocrisy, labeling yourself one way and acting another because you're above it all. Why? Pride. And then Romans 3 is full of all kinds of indictments about pride. It says in verse 18, there is of no fear of God before their eyes. They don't tremble before God. They have no fear because they have put themselves up and God down so that God is more manageable and safe. And what is that? Pride. And all of our pride contends for God's throne and makes us treasonous before Him and so guilty. And so Romans chapter 3, second half of verse 19 says, and every mouth is stopped, every mouth is shut up, and all the world has become accountable to God. We're under His judgment because of our pride and all the sin that flows out of our self-centeredness. So Paul, when he gets to the end of chapter 3 and he gets to the gospel, the good news that saves us from destruction, he says this, or he asks this, then what becomes of our boasting? And he answers his own question. And he says, it is excluded. It's excluded and that's a preview of what's to come, where we're going here this morning. That's the point of the gospel, to strip us of our pride and exclude boasting. So back in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom. In our pride, we demand of God. We demand who He must be, what He must do, how He must do it. We demand what He should want from us. 
The lost make demands on God. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We preach the gospel, Christ crucified for you. You stumble over that? That your sin is so bad that God had to, save, to, had to die to save you. And that Jesus is so much better than you that his death was enough to pay for your sins. And that his death was actually good enough to completely pay for your sins so that when you believe in him, you are totally forgiven. You have a hard time believing that? It might be pride that keeps you from believing that. The Jews stumbled over the gospel because it stripped them of anything they could do. The Greeks were looking for something that would appeal more to their intellectual and philosophical approach. So the gospel just seemed foolish. It was just too simple. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel unleashes the power of God, and with it, God's wisdom. We need to know God's wisdom. Pay attention to the wisdom warnings. Human wisdom is backwards from God, and beware of the wisdom reality that human wisdom leads to destruction. That's why we need to be saved, and so we embrace the wisdom of God. Again, in verse 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's in Jesus that we find God's power, power to save, power to transform lives, power to forgive, power to equip, power to sanctify, power to bring us all the way to glory, and we find wisdom, wisdom to see clearly, to know who God is, to know our sin, to stop suppressing truth, to know God's will for right and wrong. And Paul says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is one of those verses I get asked about a lot. Does God really have foolishness? Does God really have weakness? The answer is no. Paul is using irony here to make an exaggerated point. He's saying, God doesn't have foolishness, God doesn't have weakness, but if he did, even that would be stronger and wiser than men. He has all the wisdom, all the power, he reigns, which is why in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 2, Paul is telling the Colossians that he wants them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden, catch this, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Human wisdom. And then skip to verse 9. For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You know that verse, but do you know it in context, the very next phrase? And you have been filled in Him. You've been filled, completed, because you have the wisdom and power of God in you. You have the mind of Christ it's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of this world is backwards from the wisdom of God, but you have the mind of Christ. That's why Matthew 7, Jesus says, the wise man builds his house on the rock, on the wisdom of God and who he is. But the foolish man, he built his life on the shifting sands of human wisdom. And when the rains came, his house was washed away. God's wisdom is true and right and permanent and good. Build on that wisdom and you'll withstand any storm. Man's wisdom exchanges the truth about God for a lie, and you build on that wisdom, and when the storms of life come, they will destroy you. In what ways might man's wisdom creep into your thinking, into my thinking, and contaminate God's wisdom? 
We need to be on alert. We need God's wisdom. We need to know God's wisdom. And then point number two for this morning is we need to know God's purpose. If God's wisdom is right and our human wisdom is flawed, then it's His purposes that we want to know and to hold on to. His purpose, His target, His aim, His direction, that's our North Star. We want our life to be aligned with where God is going. All of God's wisdom and all of God's power is aimed toward one specific end. We want to be aimed in the same direction. And to see this aim, we're going to look at five things here in the second part. At God's people, God's call, God's choice, God's gifts, and God's purpose. I know that was fast, but we'll go through each of them one at a time. First, we're going to look at God's people. God's people. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God's people. So who are God's people? So just take a look around. Look around the room for a minute. Look at who's next to you. Look at the people around you. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble. Now there are some wise, powerful, and noble Christians that God calls, but not many. His people are the regular ones. And that's an important part of God's plan. MacArthur quotes from the writer Celsus, a Greek philosopher who wrote describing Christians in 178 A.D. This is what he says, describing Christians. We see them in their own houses, wool dressers, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms convening in the mud. That's his description of Christians. That's how he describes Christians. By the world standards, Christians don't look like much. But that's God's people. That's God's design. And that is integral to God's ultimate purposes that we're going to see. God's people. And then we come to God's call. Note back in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God. Verse 2, the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Verse 9, we see God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. And verse 23, we see, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Note that this is not a reference to a general call that just goes out and some people answer that call. This is a specific call, a call to be saints, a call to the fellowship of Jesus. Uh, And to those who are called, the gospel is the wisdom and power of God. To those who are called, the gospel is wisdom. To those who aren't called, the gospel is foolishness. That's Paul's point. Sorry, last week I never made a reference to Romans 8. Uh, Maybe the first sermon I've ever preached not to do that. So we're going to Romans 8 now. Verse 30 in Romans 8 says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. God chose, and then the ones He chose, He called. And then He justifies the ones that He calls. And then He glorifies the ones that He justifies. If you're called, it's because you were chosen. And you will be justified. You will be glorified. There is a result that happens when you're called. The result of being called is that you will be glorified. You will stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. God's people are the nobodies of the world. 
the frogs, the worms squirming around in the mud. But God has called those people. He intended for them to be His. So we have God's people and God's call on those people. And He called those people because of His choice. So that brings us to the third part of this, God's choice. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. To further describe the people God called, the not many who are wise, powerful, and noble, it says that He chose the foolish, the weak, and the low. And the reason for those that He called, that He chose, is to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to show His power to the foolish and to the weak. But note, it's God who chose. God did the choosing. And it's because all of this is about His purpose and His plan. He's God, we're not. He's in charge. All of this is for Him. We're along for the ride. I just want to ride with Him. God chose the low and the despised. He chose the things that are not. So low, it's as if we didn't even exist. To make those who do exist, the powerful, the influential in the world, to make them ultimately seem as nothing against the contrast of the wisdom and power that God puts into the lowest of the low. Verse 30, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Why are you in Christ Jesus? You're smart enough, wise enough, good enough? No, because of Him, you're in Christ Jesus. Because He chose and He called. Because He has a purpose and His purpose will not be derailed. It's too big. It's too glorious. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, because of Him, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. One of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible. Pay attention to when that shows up. Before time began. God saved us and called us out for His purpose before time began. You see, God had a plan before time began. And we're all part of that plan. So we'll unpack that here in just a minute, but I first want to look at God's gifts. Because in verse 30, it says, because of Him you're in Christ Jesus, and because came to us wisdom, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The gift is Jesus, and in that gift there are more gifts. And the first one is the wisdom of God. And know how the wisdom of God and the power of God come together. If you look over at 1 Corinthians 2, the very next chapter, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, speaking of worldly wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know what that is? That sounds like foolishness to the world. It's too simple. Direct. God came to earth to die for my sins so I could be forgiven. But that's all that mattered to Paul. And then in verse 4 he says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and, and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then you skip down to verse 16 and he says, and we have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ, the wisdom of God that has been put inside of you. When you have Christ, you have the mind of Christ. And so in verse 30, because of him, you are in, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. You have access to God's wisdom, opposite of the world's wisdom when you're in Christ. And we have righteousness Jesus becomes our righteousness. We're covered by Him. He becomes our sanctification. His power in us, conforming us to look like Him. And He's our redemption. His death, purchasing us from sin, granting eternal life. 
These are the gifts given in Christ Jesus. And they all serve an ultimate purpose. So that brings us to that purpose. We see God's people and His call and His choice and His gifts to those people whom He's called and whom He's chosen. And He has a purpose in all of this. Go back to verse 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 29. We have a purpose statement. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no one can boast. His purpose and His plan hinges on stripping us of everything and anything in ourselves. That's why His people are mostly those who have nothing in themselves to point to. The lost, the broken, the weak. And that's why, as Pastor Mike has been preaching through Ephesians 1, it's why the doctrine of predestination is so important. So that we are clear that there is nothing in us that can take any credit for any part of what we receive from God. So that no one can boast. It's not our choice. He chose. It's because of Him that we're in Christ Jesus. Now you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't I choose to follow Him? Didn't I choose to believe Him? It's addressed all over the Bible. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you. What? Not only that you should believe in Him. It's been granted to you that you would believe. Ephesians 2.8.9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it. What is the it? The grace and the faith. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should what? Boast. We are stripped of everything. God gives us belief. God gives us faith. That's why in John 6, 29, Jesus says, this is the work of God. What's the work of God? That you believe in Him. God gives you belief. It's His work in you. Lots of other passages make the same point. Yes, we choose to believe, but even that belief is a gift from God. As Jesus told Nicodemus, men loved darkness rather than light. Yeah, if you're caught up in free will, yes, you have all the free will you want. You just have a contaminated heart and you just love sin more than anything else until God invades your heart in the new covenant, rips out that heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, and what does that heart of flesh do? It believes. It sees the value of Jesus and everything changes. And this matters because God has a purpose. He has a plan. He's not up in heaven hoping that you choose to follow Him. His whole plan hinges on those that He has called worshiping Jesus and being stripped of everything in them. God is not dependent on you. The Creator is not dependent on the creature. His plan will be fulfilled because it's too big, it's too glorious, it's too important. And the plan strips us of being able to take any credit for ourselves. Why do you believe and someone else doesn't? Are you wiser? Are you more spiritual? Are you smarter? Are you better? No. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. And all of this so that you would have no reason to boast except for one thing. Look at the last verse. Verse 31. So that, another purpose statement, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So that 100% of your boasting is in the Lord. And who is the Lord? We know that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We boast in Jesus and Him alone. Now, I don't care if you've heard this dozens of times and you know exactly where I'm going with this. 
I'm going to ask you to pay attention. And if you've never heard what I'm about to say and you have no idea where I'm going, I'm going to ask you to pay attention. The question that rocked my world and defines the trajectory of my life is this. If God was eternally happy in himself and needed nothing and no one, and you do not add anything to God's joy because he was infinitely happy in himself before you ever existed, and I do not add anything to God's joy, then why did God create? What is the reason for my existence? Now, often we hear, and I think it's right, we say he did it to display his glory. But that doesn't satisfy me because I have to ask, did God need to display his glory to be happy? No. The Bible's full of verses that point to the eternal happiness of God because of the infinite love within the Trinity forever. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have, ex have existed as one God, completely happy and satisfied in inner Trinitarian love that they share. So what did God want to accomplish by creating the universe? Why do I exist? Why do you exist? About once a month, Pastor Mike will read as the benediction, Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 20. And it says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. What is the blood of an eternal covenant? A covenant that was made before time began, that depended on blood in some way. Or in Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, did what? Promised before time began. God made a covenant before time began. God made a promise before time began. What was God promising? What was God covenanting before time began? And more importantly, with who did God promise and covenant? There was only the Trinity. This is an inner Trinitarian promise, an inner Trinitarian covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before time began. Remember in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, before time began. God had a purpose before time began to redeem a people who would be stripped of anything they could boast about. Nothing in themselves, not because of works. Nothing they could do so that they would boast only in Jesus. And there's lots of references to this in the Bible, but I'll just point you right now to John chapter 17. Jesus in the high priestly prayer, he prays and says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, they, speaking of us, we have been given from the Father to the Son. We are a gift within the Trinity from the Father to the Son. And Jesus prays that they would be with me where I am so they may see my glory that you have given me. Jesus says, I'm praying about this gift and I want them to see my glory. And why has the Father given the Son the gift? The last sentence of this verse, for you, the Father, have loved me, Jesus, before time began. Before time ever started, there was love between the Father and the Son. The Father says, Son, I want to express my love to you, and I'm giving you a gift of a redeemed people who don't deserve it, nothing in themselves at all, but they're going to be saved from eternal destruction, and they're going to worship and praise you as their Savior for forever. That's my gift. 
And it happens because of the Father's love for the Son. We were created and saved so that we would see the glory of the Son of God and worship Him forever. The Father loved the Son and desired to give Him as a gift, as an expression of His love. Jonathan Edwards talked about how love must find an expression. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And the Father, in a demonstration of this indescribable, supernatural, perfect love expressed to the Son, a desire in this love in a very unique way by giving us as Christians as a gift. We were chosen to be the expression of that love. And that's why election and calling and choosing and predestination are so important. God's purpose is to express His love to His Son through redeemed, undeserving people who would worship Jesus with all that is in them for forever. And nothing will stop Him from accomplishing his plan and his purpose to express this love to his son. It's the root of why God has a special love for his own, why he adopts us and loves us so fiercely. Romans 3 says that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who is good. There is no one who seeks for God. All are worthless. And then we turn around and we say, oh, but God loves you. Why does God love you if you are worthless? Is it an arbitrary, anchorless love for no reason? No. He loves us because we represent the love between the Father and the Son of God. Like the diamond in an engagement ring, it's real value. Why that diamond is really cherished is because of what it represents. It represents the love of a man for the one who would be his wife. And we are loved because of what we represent. We represent the love of God the Father for God the Son. And so He loves us with a fierce love. And it's His plan to strip us of boasting of anything in ourselves and fill us so that we would boast forever, loudly, with everything we have to boast in our Savior, the one who purchased us. We are to boast in Jesus Christ. And what does this boasting look like? It starts with an understanding that your life is of infinite cosmic significance intended before time began to play out in an expression of ultimate love in the Trinity. And at the heart of it all is that you would find overflowing eternal joy in Jesus for forever. That in everything that ever happens in your life, it's all directed by the sovereign king so that you would sing and cheer and applaud the name of Jesus forever, all out of overflowing joy for who he is and what he's done. So we boast when we hold on to his wisdom, trusting his plan, accessing the mind of Christ to govern how we live. We boast in him by trusting his unending power to accomplish what he says. Let us boast in him by shamelessly telling the world who He is and what He has done. Don't tell me that God's sovereignty restrains evangelism. It powers evangelism. It is the fuel for evangelism. In His sovereign power, we are more than conquerors, and we proclaim Him not to change minds and hearts, but to boast in Him. It's His power that does everything. We just point to Jesus. Like Peter who said to the lame man, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. And what does he say? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Not that we're apostles, but it's the same for us in that it's all about the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That, that's what we offer, that he's more than enough and we boast in him. 
Let us boast in Him by delighting in His law and meditating on it day and night. Let us boast in Him by trusting Him with all our heart and not leaning on our own understanding. Let us boast in Him by letting go of worry and anxiety, knowing that He will work all things together to pull out maximum praise and joy from our souls. Let us boast in Him by making much of Him in our lives, giving Him praise and thanksgiving and honor and attention. Let us boast in Him by prioritizing Him, prioritizing His people, prioritizing our time with Him. Let us boast in Him by singing loudly to Him and about Him. Let us boast in Him by being obedient to what He says, even when our flesh pulls so hard in the other direction. Let us boast in Him by resting in His forgiveness when we feel the weight of guilt and our sin, knowing that His sacrifice on the cross was more than enough to pay for our sins. Let us boast in Him by faithfully depending on Him, praying to Him, leaning on Him in every part of life. The universe exists so that a redeemed people would know their sin, see their Savior, and worship Him with everything they have, stripped of their own worth and resting totally in His. And these people, the saved people, the called people, are the representation of an eternal, infinite love from God the Father to God the Son before time began. So let us boast in Jesus and Him alone. Lord, thank You for this morning and for Your Word that points us to our full satisfaction and joy, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. God, may we see Him more clearly, love Him more intensely. God, would our affections for Jesus drive everything in our lives and everything else would fade away and we'd be left with making much of Jesus. Pray that that would be more true this week than ever before and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me and we'll close in singing Boasting in Christ. I will 
Remember our team in Africa, Steve Skelly, Tony Verdesia, Connor Haas, Pastor Mike, be praying for them. And I uh, wanted to let you know there's a summer internship that you can apply for now. This is directed towards uh, young adults, college age, and there's an opportunity to grow in personal discipline, ministry understanding, practical service. Applications are available online or in the weekly email. So as we close here today, I want to read again Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign.